Hello and welcome to Nerd Roamer. You were just listening to the smooth sounds of Johnny Hogg playing the theme song for Nerd Roamer, Places I've Been. This is the history, science, nature, and travel podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about the world around them. Why bury your nose in a guidebook when you can let us do the heavy lifting on finding fun facts about all kinds of interesting places? Learn more about the world you explore with Nerd Roamer, Roam Wisely. I struggled a little bit with how to structure this episode of Nerd Roamer. I've been thinking about doing it a long time. I actually wrote it several months ago, but it just seemed too tangential for me. I couldn't decide if this episode was going to be a science episode, a history episode, if it was going to be primarily focusing on one place or multiple places. And after hemming and hawing for a little bit, I decided, let's just go for it and let's see what we get. I'm going to have to warn everybody out there. This is going to be a very boring episode. It might seem kind of strange considering the fact that we're talking about tidal waves. Because tidal waves, you'd say to yourself, tidal waves, tsunamis, sound very, very exciting. Devastating natural disasters, very dangerous, very scary. However, if you've read anything about tsunamis, you would realize that tidal wave is actually a misnomer. Tsunamis have nothing to do with the tides, are oftentimes caused by seismic activity or landslides, things like that. One-off events. They're not caused by the regular motion of the tides. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is an actual wave that is caused by tides that is just extremely large. So what we're going to be talking about today are called bore tides or tidal bores, and these are waves that actually are tidal waves. So if anyone points at a picture of a tsunami and they go, hey, look at that tidal wave, you can say, actually, that's a misnomer. That's a tsunami, but tidal wave is a thing, and then you can direct them to this podcast. So that's great. We're starting out with semantics, so we're off to a great start. You can tell this is going to be a really exciting podcast. I warned you, this is for the hardcore nerds out there. As a case study for our exploration of bore tides, we're going to be focusing on one bore tide in particular, the bore tide that's generated in Turnagain Arm in Alaska which is really the only large bore tide in the United States today. There used to be a decent bore tide that you would see in the Colorado River, actually more where it emptied into the Pacific Ocean on the Mexico side. So the Colorado River also used to have a pretty decent bore tide, but with the damming and drop in water level, that's not really a thing anymore. There are some small bore tides that you can see in the rivers in the U.S. southeast, so like the Savannah River, for example, but... Very, very small, usually just a couple inches. So the bore tide in Turnagain Arm is going to be our case study tidal bore for the rest of this episode. If you're not familiar with Turnagain Arm, it's a body of water that's located very, very close to Anchorage, Alaska. So it basically comes right up to Anchorage, Alaska. And when we're talking about an arm in terms of geography, an arm is basically like an inlet of water. It's kind of like a mini inlet. It's just like an elongated, narrow body of water that branches off of a larger body of water. In the case of Turnagain Arm, it's an extension off of the Cook Inlet to the southeast of Anchorage. So the Cook Inlet is that big, kind of elongated bay that, if you're looking at a map, kind of leads right up to Anchorage. And then Turnagain Arm is very, very shallow, and it extends for roughly 40 or 50 miles to the southeast of that. Now, you all know how much I love a good tangent, and I love talking about history just as much as I like talking about science. I know a lot of people that listen to the podcast really, really like when we talk about history, 
And so I've got to mix in some history here because there's some great history with the Turnigan arm. So you might be wondering, how did the Turnigan arm get its name? What does that mean? Was there like a Henry Turnigan who discovered it? Turnigan arm got its name, like many places in Alaska, from the exploration of Captain James Cook. If you haven't run into James Cook in your reading, you probably have if you're a history nerd, but if you haven't run into James Cook in your reading, I gotta tell you, this guy really got around. And when I say he got around, I mean he literally got around the world a lot. Three times to be precise. But even within those three times, there was a lot of getting around within his getting around. This guy was like an inception of getting around. In 1776, America was being born, independences were being declared and whatnot. It's in this time frame that James Cook, who was British, he was from the UK, he was dispatched by England to seek a potential Northwest Passage, quote-unquote. Over the course of our podcast here, we'll probably run into other explorers or other circumstances where people are talking about searching for the Northwest Passage. When I say Northwest Passage, what I'm really talking about is they're looking for some sort of method of getting by ship, some sort of ship passage from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, basically over the top of Canada. So what we're going to have in a few years when the polar ice caps are completely melted, that's what they were looking for basically, was like a shortcut to get from England to Asia without having to go all the way around the bottom of Africa or all the way around the bottom of South America, around Cape Horn, around the Cape of Good Hope. You get the idea. So they're looking for a shortcut to Asia basically. So in 7076, James Cook, dispatched by England, this is his third voyage and it would actually wind up being the final of James Cook's global expeditions. I mean, he didn't know that at the time, of course. Otherwise, he probably would have been a little bit more careful. He would eventually be killed in an altercation with some native Hawaiians on his way back. So he gets into it with some native Hawaiians. That would be a great separate podcast. So I'm going to put that in the good idea bin, and we're going to talk about that more in depth later, I think. When James Cook departs in 1776 from England, he departs with two ships, the HMS Resolution and the HMS Discovery. Over the course of the next two years, because remember, I mean, these guys are sailing, they're under sail. These are not fast, fast boats, so it takes them years to get around the world. So this expedition lasts for years. So over the course of the next two years, James Cook becomes the first European to visit the Hawaiian Islands, also makes landfall on the Pacific coast of North America. So He's going the long way. He's going from England. He's going all the way down around Africa, past New Zealand, past the Hawaiian Islands, past Tahiti, all those places, winding up on the Pacific coast of North America. And he hits the Pacific coast, and the guy heads north. So he starts working his way up to Alaska. And finally, in 1778, his crew begins to explore the oceans near the Kenai Peninsula. Now, pardon me, there's a lot of Alaskan geography in this podcast. It's kind of fun to familiarize yourself with. Kenai Peninsula is basically like the little goatee that hangs off of Alaska right below Anchorage. Kenai Peninsula and Anchorage, pinched between those two is the Turnigan Arm. So when you're picturing Alaska in your head, Kenai is just like that little goatee that's hanging off of Anchorage. 1778, Cook's kind of poking around there with his ships and as his crew starts to explore the Cook Inlet, which he, you know, that was obviously an impressive inlet because he took it, you know, for himself. He named it after himself. So they're exploring the Cook Inlet, which leads up to where Anchorage is today. They know two arms at the end of the inlet 
that start protruding back. And they were curious. They said, this Cook Inlet, this seems pretty promising for Northwest Passage. I mean, this is poking into the land quite a bit here. Maybe this is going to poke all the way through to England and we'll pop out and we'll get a biscuit. So they start exploring up Cook Inlet. They find these two arms. One goes north, one goes kind of southeast. So Cook sends a party out to explore the first arm and report back. These expeditions were led by his ship's master, who is a man named William Bly. So Bly heads up this first arm in a smaller boat and finds that the first arm ends without any sort of passageway through to the Atlantic Ocean. So they hit a roadblock at the end. There's a big river there that kind of extends up into the interior of Alaska. It's got great fishing. It's got a great fishing river. They didn't really care at the time. Um, so Bly goes up this arm, finds that it just kind of ends in this river, and goes, ah, nuts, and starts heading back to report back to James Cook. They wind up naming this arm the Kinnick Arm, spelled K-N-I-K, which means uh, fire in a local Native American language. So I think this may have just been the Native people's name for this arm. I'm not sure. Probably name that because there's a ton of volcanoes around that area. And over 200 miles away, even to this day, you go there, you go to where this Kinnick Arm is. Over 200 miles away, you can see Denali to the north. So, you've, But you're just ringed by all these different huge volcanoes and big mountains poking up. So that's probably, I'm guessing, where that name came from. Anyway, he reports back to James Cook and he says, You know what? Thanks for doing that. We got one more arm to check out. I don't know how promising it is because it looks really shallow. But why don't you just take the little boats and check that out too? So he sends William Bly up the second arm. In these little boats, it's very, very shallow. You know, it's maybe... 10 feet, 20 feet deep at the most, going up this other arm, 40 miles or so, and they get to the end. It didn't look promising. There's no passage at the end. That also ends in a, in a small river. And so they have to turn around and head back to James Cook to report back. No Northwest Passage again. No dice. So they wind up giving this arm the name Turn Again Arm because they had to turn around again there. So that's where that name comes from. There's no Mr. Turn Again. It was just a disappointment. Now, you know that I love tangents, and I love history, so let's pile some tangents on top of our tangents. We're going tangential squared here. So as a side note, William Bly, the ship's master, eventually this guy works his way up the ranks. Apparently he was, just, he was so good at exploring these arms that they just had to keep promoting him up. And eventually he became the captain of a ship that you maybe have heard of, and that ship was the HMS Bounty. So on an 1889 voyage, roughly about a decade after this, this time with James Cook, on an 1889 voyage, he's taking a crew of men on the HMS Bounty out to the South Pacific. So they're headed to some islands in the South Pacific. The HMS Bounty was dispatched on a kind of support or supply or maybe more like investigational support mission for plantations in the Caribbean that were staffed by slaves. The plantation owners had been running into difficulties with food supply, and so one of the ideas that the British government had was to transport breadfruit, which is a very easy-growing, calorie-dense food that's found in the tropics, especially the South Pacific, they felt like that would probably grow really well in the Caribbean and might be like a cheap, easy-to-grow source of food for slaves working on plantations there. So they sent William Bly on a trip around the world to go grab some breadfruit and bring it to the Caribbean. 
The trip wound up going a lot longer than was planned. There was some bad weather. There were some setbacks with getting the breadfruit plants. And as they were waiting in Tahiti to get these breadfruit plants, it's said that potentially his crew at that time decided that they really, really liked Tahiti and wanted to stay there. Bly packs up the crew with the breadfruit, starts making his way back so they can stop by the Caribbean, drop this breadfruit off. And it's at that point that some of the crew mutinies. Not the whole crew, not even the majority of the crew, but the crew mutinies and captures Bly, ties him up. The reasons for this are not 100% clear, but seems like probably related to the fact that they just wanted to stay in Tahiti, didn't want to keep going through this miserably long voyage that they had been on. Remarkably, they drop Bly and some of the crew members who had remained loyal to him off in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So basically, close to the no man's loneliest point in the Pacific Ocean that's super, super far from land. They drop Bly off there in a tiny little boat with a few crew members, give him a couple of navigational aids, and basically leave him for dead. You know, that's not a situation that's going to be very easily survivable. And they sail on to go back towards Tahiti. Bly, however, being a great navigator, winds up navigating the boat. They try to land on some other islands, but there's no friendly settlements there to them. They actually get into some conflicts, and one of the crew members gets killed. Eventually, they wind up at Timor, which is the nearest European settlement to where they had been dropped off, over 4,000 miles away, which is just absolutely nuts. Eventually, word of the mutiny gets back to England. They dispatch another ship to go catch the mutineers. Eventually, they actually do. That ship coming back to bring those people to trial actually sinks, and four of the 14 prisoners that they're bringing back perish. They get 10 people back to England eventually. Bly gets court-martialed because he lost his ship, gets acquitted during the trial because they determine it wasn't his fault. Of those 10 people that survived the voyage back, some get convicted of treason, some get acquitted, some get pardoned. Three wind up being convicted and actually hanged for the mutiny on the HMS Bounty. And of course, this whole incident has gone on to inspire classic works of literature, film, etc. Bly went on to have an interesting life. He lived through another subsequent mutiny and rebellion, this time on land, when he was serving as a governor of New South Wales, a colony in Australia where he was overthrown once again before England took back control of the colony. He wound up being court-martialed several times in his life and acquitted and eventually died in London and was buried there. I don't know if Bly was kind of a jerk or if he just had really bad luck or what, but definitely led an interesting life. A tangent on a tangent to a tangent. Another Bly side note that is more pertinent to Alaska so as part of their exploration of the Alaskan coast, Cook's crew also mapped out and named some features in Prince William Sound, which is kind of a little bit further east of the Kenai Peninsula. So it's a little bit further east. They probably came to that first. So this is near Valdez. One of the features of the Prince William Sound is this big rocky reef that's very hazardous. And Cook's party bestowed the name of this reef to William Bly. So this is known as Bly's Reef. And 200 years later, it was this reef named after William Bly that just shredded the Exxon Valdez where 
a massive amount of oil wound up being dumped into Prince William Sound, and this was one of the greatest like ecological disasters of all time, this huge oil spill in the 90s by Valdez, Alaska. We had a tangent on a tangent on a tangent. All really interesting stuff. So I would not blame you if you were concerned that anything William Bly touched had the potential to be somewhat unlucky. If you extrapolated this to exercising great caution around Turnigan Arm that he had explored, then you would be quite wise. Because the arm is known for being one of the most beautiful locations in Alaska, but it is also one of the most dangerous locations in Alaska. Because in addition to the bore tide that we're finally going to get into a little bit more in a second, its shallowness and muddiness leads to the creation of these big, wide, picturesque flats that you kind of want to go out and walk on. They look really spectacular, but they are essentially just like miles and miles and miles of quicksand that can trap people that hike out there. And you wind up struggling and sinking and then having one of the largest tides in the world come in. So it's actually quite dangerous. So let's set the stage for this a little bit. I want you to pick the... So let's set the stage for this a little bit. I want you to picture this. You find yourself halfway down the Turnigan Arm. You're driving on the Seward Highway, which is one of the most beautiful highways in the world. And you're standing at a pull-off alongside the road, looking out across the water. You've got the Chugach Mountains to your back. You've got the Kenai Mountains dominating the skyline to your south on the other side of the arm. The water's calm. And you've got these vast expanses of mudflat that are exposed because of the low tide. On the horizon, looking up towards Anchorage, you see a wall of water proceeding up the arm towards you. What you're witnessing, this wall of water, is the famous bore tide that we're talking about. The bore tide or the tidal bore of Turnigan Arm. So what is a bore tide? A bore tide is a wall of water that marks an abrupt transition point between a low tide and a high tide. So usually when you think of a tide, you're thinking of these gradual changes of the water coming in and coming out and just fluctuating like that. Tides move in six-hour increments based on the position of the moon. Tide moves in for six hours and out for six hours and in for six hours and out for six hours. So you have a couple high tides a day and a couple low tides a day. The same forces create a tidal bore, but it's the unique geography of the places where you see tidal bores like Turnigan Arm that causes the tide to come up the arm as a wall of water that's six to even ten feet tall instead of the usual gradual fluctuation of water. The tidal bore in Turnigan Arm is one of the largest bore tides in the world, and it is the largest in the United States, the second largest in North America, second only to the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia. The ingredients to make up a bore tide are as follows. There are three necessary. One, the ocean has to be funneled into a body of water that is long, narrow, and shallow. So if you think back to our description of Turnigan Arm, remember that it stretches for 40 or 50 miles just south of Anchorage, and it's narrow enough that James Cook and his crew initially thought it was a river, and certainly didn't think that they would be able to send their big ship up it. It's shallow enough that they, it's shallow enough that they needed to use their little boats. Think back to our description of Turnigan Arm. One, it stretches for about 40 or 50 miles south of Anchorage. Two, it's narrow enough, it's narrow enough that you can easily see the mountains on the other side of it. And three, it's shallow enough that James Cook thought that he couldn't use his big boats to explore it. He needed to send his little boats up to explore. Check. 
check, check. Hits all the points. It's long, narrow, and shallow. Throughout the world, boar tides mostly are actually found in rivers, relatively shallow rivers that empty into the ocean. So in Asia, rivers like the Ganges and the Indus rivers can produce boar tides. You got the Amazon in South America. And in North America, you've got the Bay of Fundy with a bunch of different rivers feeding into it. Another key thing to understand with the boar tides is that they only happen with the flood tide or uh, the incoming or rising tide. Never happens with the ebb tide, and it doesn't happen at low tide. It's only when the tide is coming in that you see the tidal bore. The forces that create this is that you have this incoming high tide of water that comes in and it's running into current that's flowing in the opposite direction. That's the basics of why, why the tidal bore forms. That's why they're so common in coastal rivers, because the river supplies this constant stream of current that's moving towards the ocean, makes it very easy for this incoming bore tide to mash up against this and create this big wave where the river near the coast will kind of run backwards and it'll rise and level with the tide coming in. In Turnigan Arm, the outward current towards the ocean is generated by the previous low tide moving out of Turnigan Arm. You'll have the previous low tide. You can see, if you're at Turnigan Arm, the water moving out. You can see branches washing out of the Turnigan Arm. You can watch that water moving towards the ocean. So it's so long and so narrow and so shallow that it takes forever and ever and ever for that low tide to actually move out so that the low tide is actually still flowing out at the time that the high tide is moving in. That's where the two forces meet and you get this wall of water that builds up and then the incoming tide moves in. It's kind of similar to the sloshing effect that you would get if you put a bunch of water in a shallow pan and you kind of shook it back and forth so that it would ricochet off one wall and the water moving from the right side of the pan would hit water moving from the left side of the pan and you get a big wave that had formed in the middle of the pan. Something that you can try doing if you really, really want to get your pants or your floor wet. You've got a similar sloshing effect that's going on in the Turnigan arm. You get this abrupt transition. You wind up having a wall of water 6 to 10 feet tall on the days where the tidal bore is good. Because the speed of the tide moving in is fairly predictable, the speed at which the tidal bore moves, that wave moves, is also fairly predictable. So it will start at the beginning of the arm and then move all the way to the end of the arm at a speed of around 15 miles per hour. If you remember that the arm is roughly 40 to 50 miles long, you'll realize that the tide can take four hours or so to move from one end of the arm to the other. Because we are able to predict the timing and strength of tides so well, you can also roughly estimate when various parts of Turnigan Arm will experience the bore tide on any given day. A rough rule of thumb is that Beluga Point, which is a point on the north shore of Turnigan Arm, will see the bore tide about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes after the low tide in Anchorage. You can also predict the appearance of the bore tide based on how strong the tide is for that day. So the it's no surprise, really, the bigger the tide, the bigger the bore tide you're going to see. You want to see a tidal difference between high tide and low tide of at least 27 feet to give you the most spectacular bore tides. And those are the bore tides that will really draw all the spectators out and that will draw people out to even try things like surfing. The tide is predictable enough that people will go out of their way to come watch it. And like I said, surf it. If you're a true boreaholic, if you just love watching the bore tide, you can even view the tide 
multiple times in a given day because as we said it moves up turnigan arm at 15 miles an hour so you can go to one viewpoint and observe the tide and then leapfrog it driving further up the arm and then view that wave come past you again multiple times so if you're a true boraholic you can work your whole way up the arm watching the tide remember that these big tidal fluctuations are also what make this area somewhat dangerous so make sure if you're there to observe the tide you really don't want to be down on the beach or the mud flats you probably want to be up on one of the rocks that's well above where the tidal water is going to come in ecologically the bore tide is also very very significant that moving of the water in and out so aggressively really stirs up a lot of the small fish it stirs up a lot of the other invertebrates that animals will eat so the times around the bore tide can be a great time for wildlife watching in that area as well if you're out there watching the bore tide it's not uncommon around that time to see harbor seals beluga whales which prefer those kind of soft shallow flat muddy bottoms like you've got in turnigan arm that's perfect beluga whale territory you'll see seals beluga whales birds coming in exploiting that bore tide to move along turnigan arm and hunt those small fish like the famous alaskan hooligan to feed on while there are other places in the world to see boar tides one of the things that makes turnigan arm so unique is the accessibility of the boar tide it's so visible from the seward highway there are numerous pullouts and there are nice little spots along the highway where you can view the boar tide coming in and it's just a very dramatic setting because you've got these huge snowy mountains on either side of turnigan arm that are really like lending a lot of drama to the scene so very spectacular place to view the boar tide the other place in north america that's just really really accessible with a consistently great boar tide like i said is the bay of fundy so if you go to either an alaskan tourism website or bay of fundy tourism website if you want to look into what the experience is like at each place the thing the bay of fundy has going for it is that there are numerous rivers where you can see this kind of activity there and they have the largest tides in the world at the Bay of Fundy. So they are a little bit larger than the tides at Turnigan Arm. The boar tide is a little bit bigger. But um, depending on where you live in the country and kind of what the situation is with traveling at that point, you know, Alaska versus Canada might be more easy for you depending on where you're coming from. Well, thank you for listening to that episode of Nerd Roamer. If you liked what you heard, be sure to find us on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts really helps us out. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on Nerd Roamer news and other content related to the episodes, give us a follow on social media. At Instagram and Twitter, we can be found at at Nerd Roamer. And for full descriptions of episodes with some bonus content, be sure to check out our website, www.nerdroamer.com. Until next time, keep roaming, nerds.